Welcome to this special midweek edition of the Southcrest Live podcast featuring the teaching of Dr. David Wilson. If this is your first time to listen, be sure to connect with us at www.southcrest.org for more information. And thanks for listening. We hope you enjoy this message from our Wednesday night series. Open your Bibles, if you have them, to Ephesians chapter 5. I'm just going to read a portion of verse 18. I want you to know, as we're going to talk about the subject of can a Christian drink alcohol? Now, I want to say a few things before I read this passage and we pray and and begin. I I don't stand here in any kind of condemnation or judgmentalism. I'm not the Holy Spirit in your life, but I I am committed to tell you the truth. And when you take the truth and you apply it, it's up to you. I'm not the supreme judge. I'm not the one. I'm only responsible for my own life. I have very strong convictions, and they may come out when I'm talking to you, but I want you to know that I'm not looking down on anyone. I'm not apologizing for what I'm about to say, but I want you to know that I want to be a responsible person of the Scripture, And but I'm going to tell you the truth. And so you'll have to decide how the Lord will lead you in this Ephesians 5.18 says, And do not be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Next Wednesday night, we're going to talk about living under the influence of the Holy Spirit. L-U-I is what I call it, living under the influence. But today, I want to pause right here and deal with a subject that not many people will deal with because I know for a fact it's going to make some people uncomfortable. I know for a fact it might make some mad. That's not my intent. My intent is for us to look at God's Word and what should it be for a child of God. Let's begin by having prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for your Word. Thank you for what you teach us, we ask that your spirit, which you told us in 1 John, would teach us the truth. We ask for you to teach us the truth, and we pray that, that it could change lives even tonight. It could change the future. I pray that there'll even be young people watch this and understand. And so, Lord, as we look at your word, just speak to our hearts. Thank you for the, the means by which we can do this tonight through live stream. And I thank you for these that have come up to help us. Now we ask that you speak to our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. An Irishman walked into a bar in Dublin. He ordered three pints. He goes to the back of the room and he takes a sip out of each pint until it's all gone. And when he finishes, he comes back up to the bar and he orders three more pints. Bartender said, you know, a pint goes flat after I draw it. It would be better for you if you just bought them one at a time. And the Irishman said, well, you don't, you see, I've got two brothers. I've got one in America, I've got one in Australia, and I've got one, and I'm here in Dublin. And when we all left home, we promised that we would drink this way to remember the days that we drank together. So I drank one for me and one for each of my brothers. Bartender admits, well, that's a nice custom. He leaves it there. And once a week, this Irishman would come in and do this. Several months later, the Irishman came in and he ordered two pints. Well, everybody in the bar got quiet. 
they noticed he went back to the back and he began to take a sip out of each one of them. And the bartender walks back to him and said, I really don't want to intrude on your grief, but I want to offer my condolences on your loss. The Irishman looked a little puzzled and then for a moment he realized and he started to laugh and he said, oh no, everything's just fine. He said, it's just that my wife and I joined the Baptist church and I had to quit drinking, but it hadn't affected my brothers at all. It was also uh, a time for Friday night fellowship when three couples decided to treat themselves to a steak dinner. And when they arrived at the steakhouse, they were assigned a number, sent to a crowded, noisy room, and told to wait there until their number was called. And as they waited, a cocktail waitress came by and said, welcome to happy hour. Would you like a drink? The three couples graciously declined. We're just waiting for a table. About 15 minutes later, the waitress came by again, same invitation. Again, the couples refrained. They were just waiting for a table. Five minutes later, she returned. Welcome to happy hour. Would you like something to drink? And they declined. And as she was leaving, one of the men said, you know, I'm beginning to wonder if they're leaving us in this room until we order a drink and then they'll get us a table. Well, when the lady returned one more time and said, welcome to happy hour, can I get you something to drink? One of the ladies stood up, a kindergarten teacher, and said, girl, we are all Baptists, and this is as happy as we're going to get, so tell them we need a table. There are a lot of people who think Baptists are just against everything. Now, we're not. We claim to be people of the book, people of the Bible. And that's what I want us to look at tonight. What does the Bible say about alcohol? Depends on who you ask. They're going to proof text. They're going to take scripture and they're going to try to prove anything they can to you. And I want to talk to you a little bit about alcohol. Folks, we have an alcohol problem in our country. According to the National Institute on Alcohol Abuse, the prevalence of drinking, I got on their website today and looked it up. According to the 2018 National Survey on Drug Use and Health, 86.3% of people ages 18 or older reported that they had drunk alcohol at some point in their lifetime. 70.3%. 70% reported that they drank in the past year. 55.3% reported that they drank in the last month. Speaking of the prevalence of binge drinking and heavy alcohol use, same website. In 2018, 26.45% of people ages 18 or older reported that they engaged in binge drinking in the past month. reported that they engaged in heavy alcohol use in the past month. And by the way, their definition of binge drinking, for a woman, it's four drinks within two hours. For a man, it's it's five drinks within two hours. A recent RAND study reveals that more than three out of four seventh graders, seventh graders have tried alcohol. The research also indicates that if a child is a drinker in seventh grade, he's 19 times more likely to be using hard drugs or smoking by the age 23. According to the CDC website, the Center for Disease Control, 
Alcohol use by persons under age 21 is a major public health problem. That's their statement. Alcohol is the most commonly used and abused drug among youth in the United States, more than tobacco and illicit drugs, and is responsible for more than 4,700 annual deaths among underage youth. Although drinking by person under the age of 21 is illegal, people aged 12 to 20 years old drink 11% of all alcohol consumed in the United States. More than 90% of this alcohol is consumed in the form of binge drinking. On average, the underage drinkers consume more drinks per drinking occasion than adult drinkers. In 2013, there were approximately 119,000 emergency room visits by persons aged 12 to 21 for injuries and other conditions linked to alcohol. The average binger is 16 years old in the 10th grade and began drinking at 12 Statistics indicate that the average television viewer will see 90,000 incidents of drinking on TV by the age of 21 and 100,000 beer commercials by the age of 18. 56% of students in grades 5 through 12 say that alcohol advertising encourages them to drink. We have a problem in our country. Whether you want to admit it or not, it's a problem. Now the verse that I just read to you, Ephesians 5.18, says, and be not drunk with wine, which is dissipation. It's right in the middle of one of the most critical texts in all of the New Testament that talks about Christian living. We're to be controlled by the Holy Spirit. It's absolutely essential to live the Christian life by God's standards being controlled by the Holy Spirit. But before Paul commanded us to be filled by the Holy Spirit and gives the characteristics of a Spirit-filled life, he first contrasts it with a negative command. Getting drunk with wine is not only a hindrance to, but it's a counterfeit of being filled with the Spirit. And if you think about what Paul just talked about in verses 8 through 14 about being light, being the light of the world in a world of darkness, and then being between wisdom and foolishness between verses 17, 15 to 17, his point here is that getting drunk is a mark of darkness and foolishness, and that being filled with the Spirit is the source of a believer being able to walk in the light in a world of darkness. This has always been an issue through history. Now listen clearly. Listen to me carefully. I want to be clear. Drinking or not drinking is not in itself a mark and certainly not a measure of spirituality. Your spirituality is determined by what you are on the inside, the Holy Spirit in you, of which then manifests itself by what we do on the outside. So just because you don't drink doesn't mean you're spiritual. And just because you drink doesn't mean you're spiritual. The Holy Spirit in you is the mark of your spirituality, and then it is shown in how you live. And one of the most common reasons given for drinking by people is the desire to be happy or to forget a problem. 
The problem with drinking in order to be happy, it's not the motive. Everybody wants to be happy. It's the means that's the problem. It's a temporary escape that often leads to worse problems than what you intended for it to be when you wanted to be happy. I want you to know as a pastor, I have never seen anything good come from consuming alcohol. You ought to see the side that I see and that the pastors see and the counseling and the homes and the lives that are wrecked by it. But to be fair, let's look at the scripture. First of all, I want to talk about the condemnation by scripture. Did you know that there, that the, the Bible speaks negatively most of the time about alcohol? There are certain groups of people, three classifications of people in the Bible and specific instructions given to them. What are those three groups? Let me tell you about them. First of all, religious leaders were told to abstain. Numbers 6, verses 1 through 3, and Luke 1, 15 allude to that. If you're going to be leading, you're going to be leading other people in the ways of the Lord and religion, you're supposed to abstain. The second group are secular authorities. In Proverbs 31, 4, the kings and the princes are told to abstain from wine so that your mind is not clouded and you pervert the laws of the land. And a third group is pastors, bishops, pastors in the New Testament. 1 Timothy 3.3 3 says, not given to wine, not given to wine, not addicted to it, not, uh, not be dependent upon it, not given to it. So leadership, the more authority you have and the closer you get to God, the further you get away from alcohol. That's what the scripture implies. There's also a part of Scripture that condemns drunkenness. All scripture, scripture always condemns drunkenness. Ephesians 5:18, 1 Peter 4, 2, verse, uh, 1 Peter 4, verses 2 and 3, and Proverbs verse, chapter 20, verse 1. What is drunkenness? Drunkenness is the clouding or the disruption by alcohol of any part of a person's mind so that it affects their faculties. A person is drunk to the extent that alcohol has restricted or modified any part of his or her thinking or acting. Drunkenness has many degrees, but it begins when it starts to interrupt the normal functions of the body and mind. Every picture of drunkenness in the Bible is a picture of sin. Every time, it's a picture of disaster. It's always associated with immorality and dissolution and unrestrained behavior, wild, reckless behavior, and every other form of corrupt living. It's one of the sinful deeds of the flesh that are in opposite to the righteous fruit of the Spirit. Drunkenness is always condemned in the Scripture. You ever seen anybody drunk? Now see, drunkenness has degrees because some people are drunk and may not look like it in, according to your concept of drunkenness. I had a roommate in college as a freshman, my first year of college, he would come in drunk. First time I'd ever been around a drunk person. It's not very much fun. Drunkenness makes people do stupid 
things. A fella decided to take off early from work and go drinking. He stays until the bar closes at 2 a.m. and he's extremely drunk. When he enters his house, he doesn't want to wake up his wife, so he takes off his shoes and starts to tiptoe up the stairs. Halfway up the stairs, he falls over backwards and lands flat on his rear end. And that wouldn't have been so bad, except that he had a couple of empty pint bottles in his back pockets and that broke, and the broken glass carved up his rear end terribly. But he was so drunk that he didn't even know he was hurt. So a few minutes later, as he was undressing, he noticed blood, so he checked himself out in the mirror And sure enough, his behind was cut up something terrible. So he repaired the damage as best he could under the circumstances and went to bed. The next morning, his head was hurting, his rear end was hurting. He was hunkering under the covers, trying to think of a good story when his wife came in the bedroom and said, well, you really tied one on last night, didn't you? Where did you go? He said, I worked late and I stopped off for a couple of beers. And she said, a couple of beers? That's a laugh. What makes, and the man said, what makes you so sure I got drunk last night anyway? And she said, well, my first clue was when I got up this morning and found a bunch of Band-Aids stuck to the mirror. Drunkenness makes you do stupid things. The Bible also implies a broader principle that nothing should control our lives but the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit... We can be drunk on many things. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 12. Proverbs 23, verse 19 through 21. Proverbs 23, verses 21 through the end of the chapter, you find the 12 woes of alcohol. Listen to what they say. Poverty, woe, babbling, contentions, sorrow, wounds, redness of eyes, spousal problems, mouth control problems. Judgment problems and addiction problems. You can read it for yourself and you find the message that God, what God thinks of the use of intoxicating beverages. So I want to share a life point with you here. The more authority that God gives you and the closer you get to the Lord and his work, the further you should get from alcoholic beverages. I hear people say today, We're under grace, we can do whatever we want. But I'm gonna tell you, if you look at the scripture seriously, the more of leadership that you have in the Lord's work and the closer you grow in your own walk with the Lord, the further you're gonna get away from this stuff because you don't want to be controlled by it. That's the condemnation of scripture. Now, does the scripture commend it? Yeah, it does. Let's look at the commendation of Scripture. Despite its many warnings about the dangers of wine, drinking of it is not totally forbidden in Scripture. Believe me, I've had this thrown in my face so many times. So what does the Scripture say about it? Well, first of all, it was sometimes it was even commanded. Drink offerings of wine accompanied many of the Old Testament sacrifices. Exodus 29, 40, Numbers 15, 5, Numbers 28, 7. It's likely that a supply of wine was kept in the temple for that purpose. The psalmist spoke in Psalm 104, verse 15. 
Spoke of the wine that makes man's heart glad. And the writer of Proverbs advised giving strong drink to him who is perishing and wine to him whose life is bitter. Proverbs 31, 6. And in speaking of God's gracious invitation to salvation, Isaiah even declared, Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come, buy and eat, come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Isaiah 55, 1. So the Bible does speak in a positive way about it. A second way, it was, especially in drink offerings and in the Old Testament sacrifices, the second way was for medicinal purposes. Paul told Timothy, 1 Timothy 5.23, no longer drink water exclusively, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. Jesus spoke favorably of wine in the parable of the Good Samaritan who poured oil and wine on the wounds of the man he found beaten by the roadside in Luke 10, 34. So there is some medicinal purposes. You've heard, I'm sure, about the father who was trying to teach his son about the evils of alcohol. He put a worm in a glass and another wor- in a glass of water and, a, and another worm in a glass of whiskey. And the worm in the water lived and the one in the whiskey curled up and died. And he said, son, do you, what does this show you? And he said, well, dad, it shows me if I drink alcohol, I won't have worms. That's not what his dad wanted him to learn. And by the way, I'm getting tired of not hearing you people laugh. Just kidding. <laughs> Jesus' first miracle was turning water into wine at the wedding feast in Cana. John 2, verses 6 through 10. First miracle, turning water into wine. And have I had that verse thrown out of my face many times? Absolutely. But have you thought about the wine that Jesus made? Because listen to Habakkuk 2.15. Woe to him who gives drink to his neighbors, pouring it from the wineskins till they are drunk. Now, considering all of the precautions and prohibitions regarding intoxicating beverages, do you really think Jesus made stuff that got people drunk? In fact, it's stated that you've saved the best till the last. They started at that time when they would have a feast, they would give the sweetest, less alcoholic stuff first. And then when people, when they ran out, they start bringing the stuff that was older, Here's the point I want to make. I don't believe the the wine that Jesus created was fermented. Personally, that's my personal conviction. I believe it was the fresh stuff, and I'm going to show you why here in a minute. But here's the point I want to make. You cannot take the Bible and make make a case for casual alcohol consumption. If If you're going to do that, that's your choice. But don't use the Bible as your um, authority. The Bible does not talk about it that way. And you cannot take the few verses that mentions it and make a case for moderate social drinking. If it's, it's one thing for you to do it, but don't use the Bible as your proof text. Which now brings me to the counsel for the saints of God. In light of the fact that Scripture gives many warnings about drinking wine, yet it does not forbid it, 
and even commends it in certain circumstances, how are we supposed to know what to do? So I want to share some guidelines with you, which if you answer them honestly in light of Scripture, it will give you guidance, okay? So just listen to me openly. Let's look at these guidelines. First of all, is the drinking of wine in the Bible and the drinking that's going on today the same? You see, the word wine is referenced 212 times in the Old Testament. 92% of the time, it's negative in context. Now, that doesn't even consider the word that's sometimes translated strong drink. The problem we have in the English language is that we take all of those 10 words in the Old Testament, the Hebrew words, and the five words for wine in the Greek New Testament, and we translate it all wine. When in reality, some of them are talking about simple grape juice, and others are talking about strong, intoxicating drink. Of the 10 words in the Hebrew, seven of them are negative and adverse in their usage in reference to an intoxicating use of wine. You'll find the same ratio in the five words in the Greek. Three of them are the same way in negative use. So let me give you a little lesson here. Stay with me. I got to be technical, but I want you to understand something. One of the kinds of wine translated in the Greek and in the Hebrew, in the Greek it's called sikera, S-I-K-E-R-A. You can find this in Luke 1.15. And in Hebrew, it's the word shekar, S-H-E-K-A-R. You can find this in Proverbs 20, verse 1, Isaiah 5, verse 1. And it's usually translated strong drink because of its high alcohol content and how fast people who consumed it became intoxicated. A second kind of wine, in the Greek, it was called glucos, G-L-E-U-K-O-S, and it referred to new wine. It was especially sweet. At the day of Pentecost, the, uh, the, the people around, uh, um, they accused the apostles at Pentecost of being drunk on glucos, new wine. And because freshly squeezed juice will ferment rapidly, It can cause intoxication even when it's not fully aged. It was generally mixed with water before drinking. A third kind of wine is most often referred to in the Old Testament and New Testaments. The Hebrew word is yayin, Y-A-Y-I-N, yayin. And the root word for yayin means bubbling up or boiling over. Now you would think, well, that comes from pouring the wine. You'll see the bubbles. No, that's not what it means. It, it referred to the boiling of fresh grape juice to reduce it to a heavy syrup. You put grape juice in a pot and you begin to boil it, you're going to boil the water and the infirmities and the bacteria out of it And it becomes almost a heavy syrup, sometimes like a paste. And you can store it that way without it spoiling. And because boiling removes most of the water and kills the bacteria, this concentrated yayin would not ferment. I hope you're staying with me. Yayin is often referred to syrup or paste. 
And when people then reconstituted it, they would pour water with it and they would drink it. Psalm 75, 8, Proverbs 23, 30, use the word yayin. And even when the, the wine is, or the syrup is reconstituted into a drink, its alcohol content was very, very low. The most common New Testament word for this, same kind of process, was the word oinos, O-I-N-O-S, and its most, in its most general sense, referred to grape juice. In Jesus' illustration of putting new wine, oinos, into new wineskins, he was possibly saying that it was thereby preserved from fermentation, or if it did, the new wineskins would not explode or break and, and keep it from spillage. But the practice, listen to me, the practice of reducing grape juice, fresh grape juice to syrup by boiling it, evaporating the water, was widespread in the biblical Near East. In fact, today, it's still being done in Syria and Jordan and Lebanon. And in addition to being diluted for use as a beverage, sometimes this heavy syrup was used as flavoring. Sometimes it was used like a jam-like spread on bread and pastries. And both the syrup and most of the drink made from this syrup was non-intoxicating. Now listen to this. The ancient Greeks kept their unboiled unmixed and therefore highly alcoholic wine in large jugs called amphorae. They didn't boil it down to make a syrup. They just put it in here and it just fermented away. And they were kept it, in, kept it in these big jugs called amphorae. And before they drank it, they put it in a smaller container called a crater, K-R-A-T-E-R. -E and they would dilute it 20 to 1. Water, 20 to 1. One part of this undiluted, of this undiluted um, unmixed, unboiled wine, one part of that, 20 parts of water. And then it would be poured into cups from which it was drunk. And it was this diluted form that was commonly referred to as oinos in the Greek. This undiluted liquid this undiluted liquid that was in the amphorae before they, they didn't boil it or mix it with anything. Even among the civilized pagans, drinking that unmixed wine was considered to be barbaric and irresponsible. So in answer to your first question, is it the same? The Bible, the wine of the Bible times was not the same as the unmixed wine of our day. Wine today is not diluted. Now, I want to read to you from another website, Healthline website. They answer this myth. There's a bunch of myths about drinking, and one of them, the myth was wine or beer won't make you as drunk as hard liquor. You always heard that? Oh, I'd like to have just a little wine. It's not nearly as bad. It's not true. I'm just telling you the truth. You can look it up yourself. All types of alcohol contain the same active 
ingredient, ethanol. <laughs> Same stuff you're burning in your car. That's what alcohol is in the alcoholic drinks. It's ethanol. And according to the Healthline website, all standard drinks contain the same amount of alcohol. You say, wait a minute, that's not true, but listen to what the definition of a standard drink is. 12 ounces of beer, the standard alcohol, it's five, this is a standard drink. And the alcohol put in 12 ounces of beer, it relates to 5% alcohol. Okay, take that same alcohol and put it in eight to nine ounces of malt lip beer. It's 7% alcohol. You take the same amount of alcohol and put it in five ounces of wine. It's now 12% alcohol. And if you put it in one and a half ounces of distilled spirits, it's 40% alcohol. Folks, I'm just telling you the truth. I'm just telling you the truth. The alcohol today and most of the alcohol that's mentioned in the scripture, it's not the same. You do your own research. If you don't, I don't, I don't expect you to believe me, but you do your own research. The second question that'll help you in your guidelines is, is it necessary? You see, in Bible times, as well as many parts of the world today, good drinking water did not exist. It was scarce. And the preferred wine in biblical times had little or no alcoholic content. Modern believers cannot appeal to those biblical practices to justify their own drinking because we have so many other alternatives. Mercy, how many different kinds of bottled water is there today? And all the, you can drink it out of the faucet and there's so many other alternatives. Now you'll say, well, well, you know, sometimes I drink in order so I won't embarrass my friends or my acquaintances. But is it really about them? Really? Because most people will respect your own convictions about it. They will respect what you, you say yourself. Most of the time, we're the ones that don't want to hurt our image or our popularity, so we have to do it. Sometimes it's just because you're so insecure, you got to have something in your hand, or you can't talk to anybody. I sound, like, I sound judgmental. I'm not being that way, but if you, if you just ask yourself... Do I really have to have one? Is it necessary? The third question, is it the best? I've already mentioned to you the high standards of leadership in the Bible included abstinence. If you're a leader in the scripture, you stay away from it. Well, what about when Paul told Timothy to take a little wine for the stomach's sake? Let me ask you this. Why do you think Paul told Timothy to do that? because he was a totally abstaining from it. Timothy was a sickly guy. He needed some help. He needed the, the, the medicinal value of whatever was in that wine. But the reason Paul said, Timothy, I know you're a leader in the church. You're totally abstaining. Take a little of that wine to help your stomach. That's why he told him to do it. He didn't say, well, just take it to, to be a social drinker. Again, I, I sound, um, I get passionate about it. I have strong convictions about it. I've pretty much done away with all weddings. Didn't mean, I didn't know it was gonna be the case. I never get asked to do a wedding anymore. It's not that my feelings are hurt, but when I made the issue that I'm not gonna be part of a wedding where alcohol is gonna be spread everywhere during a reception, I just don't do those kind of weddings anymore for my own personal convictions. So yeah, I get passionate about it. 
The f- a fourth question, is it addictive? 1 Corinthians 6.12 says, all things are lawful for me. Sounds good, doesn't it? Except it says, but I will not be mastered by anything. I want to be controlled by the Holy Spirit. Yeah, is it legal for me to drink? I guess under grace I can, but I don't want to be mastered by it. Is it addictive? It applies here. Alcohol easily produces overpowering dependency. In addition to the alcohol's dependency itself, it distracts the attention and interferes with the judgment of the one who's addicted. The American Medical Association, AMA, has stated, and I quote, there is no minimum blood alcohol concentration which can be set at which there will be absolutely no effect. Let me read that again. There is no minimum blood alcohol concentration which can be set at which there will be absolutely no effect. The drunk and the social drinker differ only in degree, not kind. But even when something is not habit-forming for us, have you thought about how it could affect someone else who it might be addicting to? Is it destructive? The mental and physical and social destructiveness is of alcohol is so evident, I don't even need to document it. 40% of all violent deaths are alcohol-related, and 50% of all traffic fatalities included drinking drivers. It's estimated that at least one-fourth of all hospitalized psychiatric patients have a problem with alcohol. Heavy consumption causes cirrhosis of the liver and countless other physical disorders. Does it, does anything good come from it? In this day and age, we have medicines to take care of other things. Does anything good come from it? Another question, is it offensive? When you look at Romans 14, you find that we can harm a weaker brother, cause them to stumble. I don't want to do anything that would cause anyone to stumble. And maybe it's just me, but in my mind, if, if I were out drinking, you saw me drinking, it would be offensive. You don't have to worry. I'm not even tempted. I'm not, I'm not in the least bit tempted. But the pro, and I'm not better than you. And, and somebody say, well, well, preacher, you're fat. Maybe you got a problem with food. Food does not affect my judgment. It just doesn't. Yeah, I'm a big person because God made me big so people in church wouldn't run over me. <laughs> the problem is this affects and takes over your mind, your thinking. The, two more questions and then I'm done. Is it detrimental? Will it harm my Christian testimony? Listen, I'm going back to Romans 14, verse seven. Not one of us lives for himself. Wait a minute, that's not American. 
Not one of us lives for himself and not one of us dies for himself. For if we live, we live for the Lord. And if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. And in the very same chapter down in verse 21, it says, it is good neither to drink wine or do anything by which your brother stumbles. It can be detrimental to other people. We don't exercise our liberty to do anything that we want to do. And people use that today. Well, I'm under grace. That's legalism, preacher. You've never heard me one time say, if you, if you drink, you're less of a Christian or you're going to hell. I hadn't said that, have I? Uh-uh. And I'm not being judgmental. I have strong convictions about it, but I'm not being judgmental. Please understand me. I still love you. I know, I know. You think I'm stupid? I look stupid, but I'm not. You think I don't know that probably a half or more of the people in this church consume alcohol? <laughs> See, I have every one of your houses bugged. I know what you do. Just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Folks, I'm just asking you to think about this, to think about it. The last question, is it right? If you answer all the above questions, is it right for a believer to drink? I guess, I guess another way to ask it, can I do it before others and before God in total faith and confidence that it's right? If you, if you have a check in your spirit, it could be the Holy Spirit saying, this isn't what you ought to be doing. Use your money another way. Gosh, even if I wanted to drink, I'm not sure I could afford it as much as it costs. But the principle is the closer that you want to get to God, the further you'll get from alcohol. Why didn't Paul say in verse 18, and do not commit adultery, but be filled with the Spirit? Or do not steal and be filled with the Spirit? Or do not covet, but be filled with the Spirit? You know why? Because alcohol controls you. And we're to be controlled by the Holy Spirit. And we're going to look at that next week. I've entitled the message, instead of D-U-I, it's L-U-I, living under the influence of the Holy Spirit. I want to thank you for being open-minded and hearing what I had to say. If you consume alcohol, I don't know. I I frankly don't care. I'm not the Holy Spirit. And you know what? You're gonna, if you get convicted, it's not because of me. So don't get mad at me. I don't care if you get mad at me. I'm gonna tell you the truth. But I just want you to know, you need to look at it in the big, broad picture. Am I what, doing what God wants me to do? Can I do it with a clear conscience? That's up between you and the Holy Spirit. And if I ever am out, and, and I am, and I see you have alcohol at your table, have I ever gone over and jumped up and down on the table saying, you're going to hell, you fifthly rotten sinner. You've never heard me do that. And I'm not going to do it. But I am telling you that you need to take a serious look at the way it's affecting other people. Because that, to me, is more important I remember one time, the first time mission trip we took to Russia back in 1992 when it opened up and um, 
We went to help some churches and we were riding from St. Petersburg to Skoff, Russia. It was cold and we were on a school bus and it was snow everywhere and we were in the back of that bus playing spades. And one of the men from the church came back there and said, our bus driver is not a Christian and you playing cards back here He said, that's giving the wrong message in our country. We put the cards up. It's the last thing we wanted to do, even though it was an innocent game. We didn't want to make the appearance of evil and we sure didn't want to cause somebody not to come to Christ. I look at alcohol that way. I know in our nation it's become, I, I I am amazed that during this coronavirus, that the package stores are considered an essential business. You know why? Because so many people are addicted and so many people are trying to drown their sorrows. I want to tell you, you don't have to drown your sorrows. You come to the man of sorrows, Jesus Christ, who died for our sin and he gives you a real purpose in life and he can help you with any of those issues. Thanks for listening to this installment of the Southcrest Wednesday Night Series featuring Senior Pastor David Wilson. Remember, you can also live stream our Sunday and Wednesday services. Go to southcrestlive.tv for more details or to southcrest.org to learn more about Southcrest Baptist Church. And thanks for listening.